Stinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And for the first time in a long time, this is a solo show. It's going to be a quick one. I wanted to get on the record some Game 3 thoughts and set up, set us up for tonight's Game 4 in Boston. The series really starting to take shape after three games. And uh, little little known fact, Otto Porter Jr. Otto Porter Jr. is shooting 116% from a true shooting perspective in this series. That's what his true shooting percentage is, 116%. And that is your daily reminder that true shooting percentage is just what a player's two-point field goal percentage would be if you sort of converted his threes and free throws into what would otherwise be two-point attempts. That's how you can get over 100%. He's taken nine threes in the series, and so if he shot 100% from two, he would be nine for nine for 18 points. The man has made seven of nine threes in the NBA Finals so far for 21 points on 18 shots, and that is right. After three games, Otto Porter Jr. with a 116% true shooting in this series. This, unfortunately, is the only day in the series where there's one game uh, between two, one day, excuse me, between two games. So it's the only, this game three to game four stretch in Boston is the only single day off. Uh, that's why this is a solo show. And then that also has me thinking about Steph Curry's foot. We saw him injure the foot at the end of game three. One of the questions for me going forward, not just for game four, but I think impacting the rest of the series, game five, game six, is how Steph Curry's movement is going to look. We pretty much know he's going to play. Uh, He said it was a similar kind of foot sprain that he felt to the one that kept him out for a while when Marcus Smart fell on his foot uh, in the regular season a couple months ago. But, you know, for me, with him, it's not just the movement out there. It's the balance. It's the pace. It's the rhythm that he's playing with. We've talked about this on multiple podcast episodes. The strength he's put on, and then the Cody mentioned it last time, I think, the improved handle. It is so tight, and he's so comfortable kind of navigating in tight quarters that whatever pick-and-roll coverage you throw at him, he knows where he wants to go. Um, I think on this front, a couple plays... Well, let's just pick one play from Game 3 that really stood out. That ridiculous step back he hit on the wing in isolation. The whole play, he's just constantly, you know, perfectly over the center of center of gravity with the ball, going where he wants, moves eight feet inside the two-point line, and then takes those huge strides to step back out. It was only a two because his foot was on the line. But that's what I'm looking for. How does that injury impact that stuff from Curry going forward? Of course, with Steph, one thing that has been prevalent throughout the series, games one, games, game two, and game three. I don't know why I'm pluralizing game, games one, two, and three. Let's try it that way. <laughs> See, this, this is when you're rusty. You haven't talked to yourself at your desk in, in many months, um, at least not while recording. <laughs> They're attacking Steph Curry constantly. And they're bringing him up in pick and roll. And I actually had to cut this out of the game three video. It was my favorite part of the video that I just cut it for time. You just have to do that. Curry gets brought up into the pick and roll. So the Warriors are trying to protect him by pre-switching. And then 
that means that let's say uh, Derek White is the guy Curry's on. Derek White comes up to set the screen and they will pre-switch like Wiggins or someone else who's nearby to go with White up to the ball action. What White does then is he keeps going past the ball handler to the other side of the floor, bringing that defender. And that leaves Curry on the wing with White's old guy. Um, ex- or excuse me, the whoever switched onto White's old guy. So now when the second player comes up to set the screen, Curry has to be involved in the pick and roll. The Celtics are doing the same thing to Rob Williams. That's this hilarious symmetry that's taking place in this series where Rob Williams is pulled up into the screening action. They'll pre-switch often with someone like Horford or Grant Williams. So Rob Williams is guarding uh, Kevon Looney. Looney goes up to set the screen. And as Looney runs away, Grant Williams sprints away from his man to go be involved in the pick and roll action that keeps Rob Williams low. That's what the Celtics want. So then the Warriors will have that guy run out of the way or pull Grant Williams with him and bring a second player up to set the screen. It's not the first time we've seen this dance with the pre-switching, but it does something interesting. And then if you can't get it right, it bleeds the shot clock on a lot of possessions. And if you're not paying attention to that aspect uh, while you watch the game, I certainly don't think the ABC broadcast crew has really mentioned it. It might feel like in some of these moments, like, what, what is going on? Why are they just dribbling the ball? Why are they starting possessions with only 12 or 13 seconds left on the shot clock? It's because of this dance behind the play. There was actually one game, one play in game three that I was thinking of, that Grant Williams play, where the Warriors tried to send two screeners in this dance, and Grant, like, successfully sprinted back across the face of the play to keep Rob Williams out of the pick and roll. So it's kind of hilarious to me that on one side, Steph Curry is being the one targeted. And on the other side, the time Lord, Rob Williams, the rim protecting shot blocker is being targeted. And for totally different reasons, the warriors, right? Want Rob out of the lane to pull his shot blocking out of the lane. Um, and they kind of want to attack him basically with someone like Steph on offense. The Celtics are not just looking to attack Curry as a weak point in the uh, Golden State defense, but they are looking to wear him down as the series goes on and try to um, make him work harder. So on the offensive end, especially late in games, like in game uh, fourth quarter of games three, as we're coming up, games four, games five. um, I did it again. I pluralized the game. Let's move on. Uh, Basically, Steph doesn't have the legs underneath him. That's that's what they're trying to do. So fascinating dynamic. If we think about the Rob Williams one, the Celtics, by keeping him low, obviously play to his strengths. There's a whole video. We did a podcast episode on that earlier in the season. The other big part of this Game 3 video, we'll talk a little bit more about the Celtics offense. I have a few thoughts there. But the title of the video is about the Draymond Green issue. Because... The Celtics basically gave him more a more extreme version of the rules that they had been using. All teams know you don't have to guard Draymond at the three-point line, really. But Boston in Game 3 took it to a new level. In the video, I call it the Andre Roberson rules. 
they will sag off him at times. They obviously know the scouting report. They know he's not the guy who's shooting, and they know Curry is the guy who is shooting, or Jordan Poole or Clay Thompson or whoever it is. But in this case, especially when Derek White came in the game, and I thought that was the first sort of subtle adjustment from Coach Ime Yudoka. He said, we're going to run more single big man lineups than we normally do. If you look at one of those um, graphics that shows all the minutes the guys played, visualized throughout a game, Rob Williams and Al Horford, they always start the first and third quarter together, and they play a little more throughout the game. And essentially in game three, Yudoka said, we're going to start them in each quarter, but we're not really going to play them much more. It came back and, and got some good minutes in the fourth quarter. So you can see he's not abandoning this concept, but he very quickly goes to Derek White, and that introduces the small ball lineup with only one big man, Horford. The thing about the Celtics is Tatum's so big. Brown's really big for his position. Marcus Smart is huge for his position. So when they go to one of these structures, and by the way, sometimes Grant Williams comes in and we think of him as a big, they don't really lose a lot of size. And of course, offensive rebounding was a huge story in this game. They, they pounded Golden State on the glass. Some of that is just bounces and bad luck. Um, some of it is not being able to contain the ball upstream because when you have a breakdown at the point of attack, the defense goes into rotation, and then you have players who are unchecked having easier access on the weak side to offensive rebounding. But some of it was just their size. Some of it was just Boston crashing and saying, we're not only bigger than you, but there was at least one instance, maybe two that I can think of off the top of my head, where there was a loose ball, a 50-50 ball, and it didn't feel like a 50-50 ball. It felt like Golden State should have had the ball. And to borrow Draymond Green's favorite term this week, they just... Boston just had more force. They just went to the ball harder, stronger, faster, things like that. Um, And so offensive rebounding was a huge thing. The size was a huge thing. And therefore, when Boston is playing these smaller lineups and downsizing, they're not really losing much on the sort of glass interior. They still have a paint protector. On the flip side, when Kevon Looney is out of the paint, Golden State does not have much paint protection. And that was really apparent, I thought, in stretches of Game 3. Right out of the gate, Boston had a ton of penetration and finishing at the rim. And then again in the fourth quarter, especially Jason Tatum, when he was able to get to the basket, uh, there just isn't a lot of rim protection. Draymond Green still has some rim protection, obviously has a great paint presence with his ability to rotate into the paint. But it's kind of wild when you see like Jalen and especially Jason coming down and meeting him at the rim, if he's not in a great position, you feel their size. You feel the fact that Tatum is like bigger than Golden State's center in that position. Otto Porter, another guy they play in the big position, he's six seven, six eight, depending on the measurement or whatnot. But again, he doesn't he doesn't play big especially on defense. He's not a big paint protector or rim protector when it comes to vertical contests. So White checks into the game early. The Celtics are able to preserve their size, which I think is huge. And then they get this dynamic where White can move on ball to Curry. 
and you take the defensive player of the year, who's a great point of attack defender, a great screen navigator, very good at chasing, very good at calling out switches that are key um, when he's chasing Curry around and he and Clay cross over and whatnot. And you take him and you say, Marcus, you go guard no one, basically. That's, that's the rule they've come up with. Marcus is on Draymond Green, but he's coming off him more than what we've normally seen, certainly more than in the previous two games. And that roaming allows him to just muck up not only the off-ball movement, but the on-ball pick-and-roll stuff, or especially if you're going to drop. And we can debate the merits of the Celtics dropping. I think in the press conference, Al Horford made it sound like he, he should be higher. Like there are just times where you make errors as a player. It's not always a mental error. Sometimes you just don't realize the geometry of the court and you're a, two step, a few steps too low when you want to have start your drop high or something. We can debate that. But especially when you're in a drop, if you get a roamer like Marcus Smart coming over, the other defenders don't have to worry about anything. The defense especially uh, isn't going into rotation. They're not being compromised. So that means Marcus, you can just leave Draymond Green open in the corner or something, and you're either going to concede the three-pointer to him, or you're only going to really worry about recovering to the next pass. And I thought there were multiple instances in the game of Draymond being in that position receiving the pass, and then whether it's smart, I have one clip with Jalen Brown, whoever it is, their MO in their head is like, oh, let me look where there's going to be a threat on the next pass so I have time to recover. We're not really in rotation, but just as Draymond's guy here, I'm not going to close out to him. I'm going to figure out where I need to recover. Draymond talked about this, um, talked about it on his podcast, talked about it in the, in the press conferences, he, he needs to find a way to attack this and be better. In the video, I mentioned just aggression, going to the basket, even throwing in a floater, um, you know, turning and getting downhill, something like that. He can also do that with the fake dribble handoff that he uses a lot when those guys are recovering to a shooter because that's going to turn it into a much more advantageous for, position for the Warriors. That's going to be analogous to their short roll. That's going to be analogous to the four-on-three. So if you think about the play where Draymond's in the corner and he's looking for that next pass or like a handoff for Clay and he wants to hand it off to Clay and screen and create the two-on-one that way, as the defender's coming out, he's not coming out to Draymond, he's coming out to Clay, fake handoff on that, turn and get downhill, now you have a four-on-three. Those are the those are the easy adjustments, I think, or just sort of the the things you have to do, almost the table stakes at this point um, for Draymond on offense. And we can talk about the spacing issues with him and Looney and him and Gary Payton. I think in the first three games, we've seen a couple instances where when some of those guys are above the arc, because Gary Payton, the second, is pretty good in the corner, especially if you leave him wide open, he'll take and make the three. We saw that in game two. But above the break, when you leave him open, you kind of record scratch the offense a little bit, especially if he's out there with Draymond and it's just like two guys being uncovered. The thing that I really want to get into here is what happens if the adjustment is to bring Draymond back into the ball screen? Because that's kind of like the elephant in the room for me. Basically, in this series, Draymond has 
played, uh, I don't want to say away from the ball a ton, but because the Celtics are attacking, excuse me, because the Warriors are attacking Rob Williams, whoever is, is being guarded by Rob Williams, like Looney, will come up and set the screen. And then if there's uh, switching behind the play, if there's pre-switching, the next guy will come up and set the screen. So for instance, in game three, which was a one-point game late in the game, I can't remember if that was late in the third, early fourth. I know it was like a three or four-point game early in the fourth. And then the Celtics created some distance and kept that separation. It was This is one-one game in the NBA Finals. Great game. By the way, I hope you guys are enjoying this series. It's uh, it is some seriously high level basketball. Uh, a lot of talent, a lot of coaching, a ton going on out there. Great interaction for me between the Celtics defense and the Warriors offense. But now, even uh, as was the focus of the game three video, a lot happening with the with the Warriors defense and the Celtics offense. Okay, that aside, Draymond ends up only running five uh, pick and rolls with Curry. In game three. So what you did not get in this close game, despite Steph Curry still running a good amount of pick and roll, and despite that sort of dynamic with the drop being something that the Warriors could attack, you don't get the steady stream of spamming Draymond Steph pick and roll in the fourth quarter. So he ends up running five ball screens with Curry. Um, Now, when they do it, this is not something they do 30 or 40 times a game, just to be clear. I think I think Second Spectrum has the numbers in like some of the Denver games and some of the Dallas games where they go to it a lot. You might see like 12 or 13. But that's still a big difference. Let's say it's like the high end is like they're going to run this 15 times because they're just going to keep hammering with you, hammering you with it at a stretch in a key quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, where it's hard for you to defend. And in this game, they only run it five times. What happens if they bring Draymond back to the, to setting the ball screen, um, do they, do the Celtics just stick with the drop? And if they stick with the drop, I think that's something you can attack and exploit, but then that gets full circle back to Steph Curry wearing down or how much they're making him work uh, because he hasn't had a big fourth quarter yet. There were a couple possessions, I think in that fourth quarter where he turned the corner on the drop and he actually passed up a shot, basically. Um, he kept going or or he, he just, it's a, it's a shot that if you're going to give it to him over and over again, I think Steph has to be willing to take it, especially with the way the Warriors offense, um, they've been very successful with Curry on the court, but I guess outside of Curry and especially outside of that pick and roll dynamic, they haven't shredded the Celtics defense. Okay, now we go back to the other side. Gold State had an adjustment near the end of the game where they're forcing the switch onto Steph, and then the Warriors, it's like a scram blitz. Scramming is when you, you know, come over and, and bump a guy out, you switch a guy out so he can avoid a mismatch. It usually happens down in the post away from the play when you have a big, and then like Curry would get matched up with Al Horford, and, no, and they don't have the ball yet. This is just off ball. And then like whoever's nearby, like Wiggins, would just come over and swap them out. In this case, it's out with the ball, 30 feet away. Tatum has it. And Curry's on him. And then the nearest like wing, like Andrew Wiggins, 
um, he'll just blitz. But it's a blitz to switch. It's basically trying to get Curry out of there. And then, this is very coordinated from Golden State, because Curry is then peel switching, meaning he's not just going right back to Wiggins man or whatever. He's going downstream looking for someone else because the Warriors are kind of bumping a guy up the line. The Mavericks did this, and it's in the Suns video on that series, Mavericks Suns, after Game 7. There's a great play where Luka has the same thing. He's, he's recovering back, and he basically recovers to the other side of the floor. That's the way they do it. They have Curry take like a diagonal and try to pick up someone a pass or two away so he has time to recover. Do we see more of this? Is this viable to do for 30 possessions? Because it still asks a lot of running from Steph Curry, right? He's got he's to switch and find a man on the other side of the floor and then recover back into the play. I don't know how viable that is, but I think clearly the goal here is to wear Steph down in addition to attacking weaknesses. And I wonder if we see that kind of counter moving forward from Golden State. Okay, what else? The Celtics improved their spacing in this game. It was a little thing, but sometimes there's some low-hanging fruit. Like Daniel Tice's minutes, he got a little gunked up in the paint, in the dunker spot, um, you know, rolling into the paint. He didn't play. They, they said, we're going to tighten our rotation. They shelved him. Rob Williams, when Rob Williams is in the dunker spot, he does bring another defender, and that can add a little traffic when you turn the corner as a ball handler and, and bring a help defender for the Warriors. The difference with Rob Williams is his vertical spacing. Because he's a lob threat, because, um, you know, if you're not on him, if your body isn't on him, basically all the Celtics penetrators know you just throw it up real quickly, and Rob, with that ridiculous quick pogo stick leaping of his, can go get it. Uh, he can sometimes hold a defender an extra beat or two. So the Warriors, what they really want to do is kind of like pre-rotate, shrink the floor, take one or two, take two or three big steps up into the paint early and show a crowd, present a wall for the ball handler coming downhill. If you can hold that defender for an extra beat or two, then you give the ball handler more room to take off because they don't want to leave Rob Williams. Now, this only happened a couple times. I think in rewatching the film, I want to say there's two, maybe three possessions in the whole game where that actually happened. One of the reasons is Golden State is so good at rotating behind the play that they know the second Rob Williams guy steps up to meet the ball handler, the next help has to come down. Um, even if it's a guard like Steph Curry, he has to come down and get his hips and his body into Rob Williams's legs so he doesn't have the ability to seal off or just have a free jump at it for the lob. So that's one thing. Um, they had a few more cutters coming through the paint. They were more sort of cognizant or aware of, hey, we just really need to breathe and be in the right spacing positions. And if some guy gets near me or he's lifting up from the corner a little bit, then the wing needs to move over a little bit to give the ball handler a better passing option. They were really kind of pristine and sharp with their spacing in the game. That unlocks the penetration, as I discussed in the video, because it gives you an open paint. 
Uh, it makes the rotations harder. But the other thing is, and you have to give the Celtics a ton of credit, especially the Jays, is side-to-side passing punishes that kind of shrink the floor, get in the driving lanes, slide over in the gaps. Uh, and the Celtics did that beautifully. And specifically, Tatum and even Jalen Brown. Uh, let's start with Tatum. Tatum's passing has obviously been a development over the last few seasons. It's been a key development to his ascension to kind of superstardom along with his spectacular defensive value uh, for forward. In this series, the two games Boston has won, yes, the first one, uh, Tatum was like, what, three for 17? He did not shoot well at all, although I think he had some pretty good shots in that game. And then in game three, he shot plenty well. But I think both of those games, he's had a huge impact on the offense with his playmaking with his creation for his teammates. And it all ties into this story of better spacing. We even go to the lineup where Derek White comes in early. So we're playing small ball. And then we get like a pure five out. Horford can space outside the line. Obviously, you have to respect Horford. By, by the way, Al Horford. <laughs> I don't I don't even know how this is possible. Um it's a small sample, but it's like not that small. Al Horford's taken almost 300 threes in his NBA playoff career. And of course, he didn't shoot threes when he was younger. So this is only like the last five, six, seven seasons or whatever. The man is shooting 42% from downtown in his playoff career uh, on about 300 three-pointers. That's crazy. I think he's like a 30, 33-ish percent shooter from behind the arc in the regular season. So I don't know if this cools off. I don't know if the man just truly has it and he's going to shoot over his head in every one of these big playoff moments. Uh, but but that's almost incredible is Otto Porter, <laughs> Otto Porter Jr. having a 117% true shooting in this series. Even when Rob Williams was in the game. There were moments when it comes to this spacing that they didn't put him in the dunker spot. They basically created a very extended dunker spot. And remember, the dunker spot is that area on the baseline, kind of near the block, um, behind the backboard even. It's a space that big men can hang out and receive passes. And Rob is not a shooter, so he lives there. And in game three, they actually had him moved all the way to the corner on some of these plays. Um whether Golden State notices that on film or if it's a big enough deal to exploit or make a counter adjustment, I don't know. But the point is great spacing and then skip passing from Tatum early, quick, changing sides. It's a great way to punish a defense that wants to pre-rotate because then they have to kind of like flip the assignments when the ball goes back to the other side of the court. They actually have to say, it's like a zone. They have to like recover and say, okay, Actually, instead of cheating off my man, I need to be on my man. And then the guy who was just involved in the screening action, he needs to recalibrate, well, how much can I slide over and help right now? Because this is just a bang, bang. That skip pass happens in like a second. I thought they were great about that. I thought Tatum in particular was great about that. Um, His passing in the two wins, I think has been huge, 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 huge for the Celtics. Jalen Brown. I feel like this is the best I've ever seen Jalen Brown pass. Obviously not a strong sh- strong suit of his, but even Brown is making some of these skip passes or just making basic early quick reads. 
that kind of lubricate this whole system against the Golden State defense. Then there's Jalen's actual strength, which is his tough shot making. My goodness. This has been on display, uh, I want to say, for the entire playoffs, basically. Certainly in the big moments against the Bucks, certainly in the big moments against Miami, and now when it looks like we're coming down to brass tacks, I have no reason to believe, no matter what happens in this series, that Jalen Brown's tough shot making, both on threes and then in the mid-range where he can get it off the dribble, is going to be a, a, a constant basically a floor-raising kind of option that the Celtics can fall back on. Um, and th- that's just huge. That's absolutely huge. So that's it for for this one. The Jays have been great. Um, well, let me, let me actually add one more thing because I'm looking ahead to game four. Game four, and I think we'll talk about this with Cody on a future episode, by the time you get to game four in a playoff series, you kind of get close, I think, to finding an equilibrium in the series, meaning the coaches are feeling out what works, they're tinkering with their lineups, uh, they're making their adjustments, and then at a certain point, you just kind of run out of any big adjustments. You can make minor adjustments in a substitution pattern, or you say, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try a different defender on this guy, but usually by the time you're late in a series, you know what you're getting. You're just mixing it up because you think it gives you uh, a curveball or a slightly bigger edge. Minor edge, but something that you want to go to as a coach. But game game two, game three, game four, that's usually the meaty part of the adjustments. We're going into game four in this series. The big question for me is, what can Golden State do to kind of tilt an advantage back in their favor? Or have we reached the equilibrium where... The Celtics are going to do their dance with protecting Rob Williams. The Celtics have figured out how they're going to play their small ball lineups. The Celtics have figured out the spacing and kind of way they want to attack. And then on defense, the Celtics have figured out how they want to defend Steph, how they want to defend Draymond, so on and so forth. The Warriors, we've seen them um, tinker in playoff series for seven years. I guess eight seasons, going back to the, going back to the 2014-15 uh, season. And game four has been make or break at times for them. So what happens, like, why can't those adjustments be made in game three? And this is what I think we'll talk about with Cody in the future. And I'll just leave you with this to think about because it's kind of been marinating in my head for a while and certainly in this series. It's hard as an athlete, I think. This is less about coaching and more about the players. It's hard as an athlete to react to something new. Let's think about seeing a defensive coverage, like the coverages that the Celtics gave Kevin Durant in the first series, just using that as an example. If you're not used to being guarded that way, unless your coach has some brilliant halftime, first quarter adjustment or whatever that immediately alleviates that pressure, then this is kind of like the first time your brain has seen uh, the chessboard look this way. It's the first time you're like, whoa, I have to worry about this guy sitting in my driving gap on my left hand. Um, I can't get to this sweet spot that I like. Uh, Even if I turn the corner, I know Rob Williams is waiting for me in the paint. That adjustment period as an athlete feels like it's extremely hard to do on the fly in today's game with all the complexity and and the space and the screening dynamics that we've talked about. But 
if you get a day or two off, if you get time to go into your lab, practice, uh, look at it on film, get a different cognitive perspective, maybe have some walkthrough, even just like a walkthrough, I think, in the hotel lobby, you know, where you're blocking out or you're, where you're figuring out like, okay, these are how the set pieces look now for me. This is what I need to do. To some degree, the Celtics, you know, Tatum has shown an incredible adaptability and growth as a player by realizing like from game to game, okay, last game, they played me this way. So that means just making the simple pass, one pass away early before I make my move is what it was what I need to do to to counter that. The skip pass he makes in game three to Peyton Pritchard for the three on the other side of the court. Jeff Van Gundy, I think, called it out on the broadcast. That pass coming a dribble early is the thing that punishes that kind of defense. And that can be a very hard thing, I think, for your nervous system, for for the way you're wired as an athlete. You're used to doing it one way day after day, month after month, year after year sometimes. And then you see this totally new thing in a series, especially if it's like game three or game four of the series. And I think that can throw you within the game. But coaching aside, because the coaches are going to support you and try to put you in a better position, even just as an athlete, seeing it once and then getting to sleep on it, getting to process it, getting to internalize it a little bit more. I think it's the same thing when teams defend Golden State. Like they just get a little bit more used to the movement patterns because they're not used to seeing it. It's still a competitive advantage for the Warriors. The rest of the league doesn't play like this. So it takes some time to kind of wire yourself or tune yourself up to that. Um, that's the thought. Let me know what you think about it. Let me know what you think about it in, uh, it, on, on, on Twitter at LG35. But also, if you want to leave a review, um, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if you want to let me know about this concept in a review, but if you want to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, that is a fantastic way to support this channel. To also directly support this channel, head on over to patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. We have additional content. We have stats on the playoffs and a ton more. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. I hope you are enjoying these NBA finals and that wherever you are, of course, that you are having a great day.